Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Stick Together, Australia's only national radio show about workers' rights and social justice. I'm Diana Beaumont. This year, on the 100th anniversary of the Anzac landing at Gallipoli, the multi-million dollar commemorations have focused on myths of heroism in this failed campaign to win control of that strategic strait of the Dardanelles in Turkey. And as many as 50,000 people are expected to cram into Anzac Cove to commemorate the centenary of the landing this weekend. But what's largely missing from the commemorative spectacle saturating the media is a real reflection on the social impact of the First World War in Australia and its lasting influence on Australia's political landscape. So today on Stick Together, we're going to look back on the role that the Labor movement played in the First World War and the impact that the four years of war had on Labor politically and industrially. Today we speak with Joan Beaumont, who's Professor in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. The university. Joan's book, Broken Nation, about both the military and social histories of the First World War, um, won the Prime Minister's Prize and the New South Wales Premier's Prize for Australian History in 2014. And as you can guess from the surname, Joan Beaumont also happens to be my mother. And given that today is actually my last appearance on Stick Together, I thought it fitting that I go out by finally interviewing my own mother on the impact of the First World War on Australia's labour movement. Joan, thanks so much for joining us on Stick Together. My pleasure, Diana. So when the war broke out in Australia, it had only been four years since the new federal manifestation of the Labor Party won the world's first majority Labor government in 1910. And before that, industrial Labor had set world precedents for workers' rights, such as the eight-hour day. It's impossible to speculate, of course, as to what might have happened had there been no war. But, Joan, how did the war change the trajectory of the Labor movement in Australia and hence the country's entire social development? The war changed uh, Labour's trajectory very dramatically and really very negatively because um, the conscription crisis that the war finally triggered uh, split the Labour Party at the federal level. But it took some time for that to develop and I think it's important to remember that at the beginning of the war, as you say, Labour was in a very strong position politically. Um, It had held office. It wasn't uh, the federal government in July 1914. But, in fact, there was an election being conducted when war finally broke out in um, Europe and the Labour Party won that election. So it was in office from September 1914 on at the the national level. And Labour leader Andrew Fisher was very supportive of the the war effort. He's he's the one who coined the saying, the last man and the last shilling, is he not? He is indeed. And it has been argued that... uh, Labour's strength, in the sense that it had already held national office and would form the government, was one of the reasons why uh, Fisher did come out so strongly in favour of the war. I mean, many of his 
um, colleagues within the industrial labour movement, the trade union movement, which was very strong at that time, had some reservations about the war, which they saw as a conflict between um, capital and labour, and they were not particularly uh, enthusiastic about Australia's going to war. But the federal politicians seemed to have felt constrained by the fact they were fighting an election and didn't want to be painted as sort of soft on defence. So in contrast to the Labour Party, say, in Britain, where uh, people like Keir Hardy came out very strongly against going to war in late July and early August 1914, the Federal Labour Party in Australia was enthusiastically in favour of supporting Britain. And in which states were the industrial wings of the Labour movement most staunchly opposed to entering the First World War? Well, I think in answering that, we've got to really look at what we know from the um, publications that the Labour movement produced. And uh, some of the most influential voices of of left-wing opinion were the worker and the Australian worker, which are based in Brisbane and Sydney, respectively. And when industrial strife finally broke out in the middle of the war, um, it was right along the eastern seaboard from Brisbane down to Melbourne. So I think you could argue that the, the strongest voices of Labour opposition in World War One were in the eastern states. And the Labour movement by the early 20th century had very well-developed critiques of global capitalism and imperialism. Tell us more about the ideological grounds on which the radical left of the Labour movement opposed the war. Well, the, the Labour movement in Australia was a spectrum, really. I mean, at one end, the more conservative end, there was a very pragmatic type of socialism, which I think is what was represented in the federal Labour parliamentarians. Uh, But at the other end, there were people who were genuine Marxists. Um, The influence of syndicalism, uh, the industrial workers of the world, was quite pronounced in certain branches of the Labour movement. And there were even elements of anarchism. So you had a whole spectrum of of Labour opinion, left-wing opinion. Um, But generally, uh, the voice of Labour said, look, uh, look, the real issue is is the class warfare between Labour and capital, not the warfare between nations that was occurring in Europe. So, for example, Henry Boot, who was the editor of The Australian Worker, which was the paper of the Australian Workers' Union, described World War One when it broke out as a phase of capitalist society that had no great principle behind it. And he just called it a monstrous fallacy um, and called on God to help Australia because he thought it was going to be such a catastrophe. And, and I've got in front of me a segment of the newspaper of the Industrial Workers of the World Direct Action from August 1914, where the paper says, War? What for? For the workers and their dependents, death, starvation, poverty and untold misery. For the capitalist class, gold stained with the blood of millions, riotous luxury, banquets of jubilation over the graves of their dupes and slaves. War is hell. Send the capitalists to hell and wars are impossible. So I think these these publications, which we can look back on today, really give an impression of the bitterness of the division in Australian society over this question of war and later of conscription. Well, at the beginning of the war, there were certainly people who voiced the opinions you've just described, but they they were very much on the margins of Australian politics in August, September 1914. Um, overwhelmingly, Um, Australian public opinion, so far as it was measured at that time, supported the decision to go to war. 
it's as the war continues that the opposition from the labour movement starts to grow. And interestingly, the opposition comes not so much, I think, from um, the, the disappointment in the way the war is progressing, but from anger about domestic issues. So for the labour movement, one of the real problems was that the war very rapidly disrupted the Australian economy. Um, Australia was in very heavily dependent on international trade in 1914, and this dried up very quickly, partly because some of the countries with which Australia was trading were now enemies, and there was a great shortage of shipping. So um, unemployment rose very rapidly in the last months of 1914, and then prices, particularly of food and other essential commodities, started to rise. And really prices became a, a, a very hot issue in Australian domestic politics. And for the left wing, I think prices became a, a symbolic issue of who was actually paying or bearing the burden of the war, paying the price of the war. And their view, which you can see in many cartoons, was that the, the capitalists, or as they like to call them, plutocrats, or they had a wonderful cartoon character, a big fat man called Fat, um, this represented to them the profiteer who was doing very well out of the war while the working class was bearing the economic burden of the war. And then, of course, after Hughes takes on leadership of the Labor Party, the political wing, and I presume the industrial wing of the movement, split badly over the debate over conscription. They did indeed, but even before the debate about conscription, the tension between Hughes and the industrial movement had started to come to a head because of this issue of prices. Now, the, the federal government had rather limited powers to control prices, and it was a policy of the Labor movement that there should be a referendum to give the federal government the power to control prices. And Hughes, for various reasons, in late 1915, decided not to go ahead with the referendum, and this was seen as a huge betrayal by the Labor movement and they actually started calling him Judas Iscariot, um, even well before the conscription crisis came to a head. And um, critics of conscription, of men to fight in the war, or people who were looking at other areas of the economy, also put forward the idea of wealth conscription, did they not? That capitalists should also have to um, share the burden of the war. Yes, that was very much a, a catch cry of the left. They kept talking about equality of sacrifice, and if there were to be um, a conscription or rounding up of men for military service, they felt there should also be an assessment of what was the wealth of the nation. This was actually conducted in late 1915. And what it showed was great inequality in the distribution of wealth. And uh, for the Labour movement, um, unless the government did something to address that, then they had no right to start um, compelling men to fight in the war. You're listening to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. Every week on the Community Radio Network. We're speaking with Joan Beaumont, Professor in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian University in this week leading up to the centenary of Anzac Day. 
But looking back at the history of the labour movement during the First World War, the, this war was also used as grounds to outlaw dissident groups like the International Workers of the World who were on the ascendancy at this time in Australia. Joan, tell us about the New South Wales government's imprisonment of the 12 um, IWW leaders in 1916. Yes, well, the IWW, or the Wobblies, as they were commonly known, uh, became demonised both by the federal government and particularly the New South Wales government. They became sort of um, painted as, as traitors, potential um, fifth columnists within, within Australian society. And, um, of course, the IWW was very critical, particularly on the question of conscription. So um, in Sydney in um, late 1916, there were some fires which were blamed on the leaders of the IWW. They were accused of arson and and other crimes and subjected to a a trial um, which was pretty dodgy and yes they were imprisoned and Henry Boot the um, editor of the Australian Worker launched a a long campaign um, to try and clear these men and get them released from jail. And their organisation was entirely banned was it not under the Unlawful Associations Act? Yes, it was. Um, in late 1916, Hughes, just after the first conscription referendum had uh, been lost, at least from Hughes' point of view, won from the left wing's point of view, uh, after the first conscription referendum, they introduced the Unlawful Associations Act, which banned particular organisations, but everyone knew it was aimed at the, at the Wobblies. And then in mid-1917, they, that act was amended to even make membership of an organisation that was judged to be unlawful in itself a crime. So the IWW really was broken um, by those, those pieces of legislation. And, and how did the Bolsheviks' political victory in Russia and their withdrawal from the war affect Labor dissidents like the Wobblies here in Australia? It's interesting. You can't see a lot of direct impact. I mean, there's no doubt that it was really very encouraging and a source of, of great enthusiasm for, for those on the left. And it may be that which contributed to the fact that, um, well, although the Bolsheviks didn't come to power till the end of 1917, but in 1917 the Labour movement in Australia, which had not been very active in terms of strikes, um, really started to go on the offensive in terms of industrial action. So you get this huge general strike in August, September 1917, which may in some senses have been a response to this, this, the realisation that the workers were becoming empowered in Russia. Of course, the Russian Revolution uh, triggered a great deal of paranoia on the part of Hughes and other conservatives, including um, organisations of returned soldiers. And so after World War One when the soldiers start coming back from the battlefront, you get a number of incidents, violent incidents in the streets where um, soldiers are attacking Australian Russians and and people that they thought were communists. You mentioned the spike in strike action as revolutionary activity was was happening in Russia. But um, let's talk more generally about industrial action in Australia during the war. Did um, the Labor movement wage industrial action at strategic times in the war? Well, as I said, for the first two years of the war, there was relatively little industrial action and not terribly many days lost. 
But then the two great spikes in industrial action were 1917 and then 1919, the year after the war. The consequence of the 1970s strike, which was profound, um, was in some ways a great defeat for, for the union movement. Hughes moved to deregister a number of the unions and uh, the employers turned the strike into a lockout and the federal and state governments mobilised a lot of volunteer scab labour and kept some of the um, essential uh, industries going. So for the union movement, it was a a crushing outcome. People like Ben Chifley, for example, who later went on to become Australia's Prime Minister, he was a train driver, and, and he found that he could only return to work at a lower level and a lower wage than that which he'd had at the beginning of the strike. So in 1918, you see the unions are, are quite relatively passive, but it's in 1918 that the um, the union movement, or at least the Labour conferences, finally start calling for an end to the war. By June 1918, they've really had it, and they're trying to stop their politicians, Labour politicians, campaigning even for men to volunteer for the war, let alone to conscript them. And then there was a big strike again in 1919 after the war. What were the demands of that? Oh, yes, I think it was the sense that um, that wages had been um, had not kept um, pace with, with rising costs. Um, there was, um, of course, the concern about the... Um, the crushing of the unions in 1917 and the exclusion from from work of some of the people who'd struck in 1917. And then you've got to add to that the fact that a whole lot of men were coming back looking for their jobs that they had vacated at the beginning of the war. And one of the divisive issues that um, resulted from the war was that returned servicemen were given preferential treatment in terms of employment, particularly in the public sector. So for the union movement, um, there was a new kind of hierarchy of workers um, and these returned soldiers were deemed to be more worthy than than those men who had stayed at home in the labour movement. And did these tensions between returned soldiers and people who hadn't stood up to volunteer manifest themselves violently? Uh, they did in 1917, and then, of course, it goes a bit underground in the 1920s, but um, a number of private armies were started by various right-wing organisations to sort of stand by, supposedly, and help the government, if there were ever to be um, a, a communist insurrection. And these movements bubble up again during the Depression years in the form of the, the New Guard. Mm. Well, let's consider you know, more broadly how the war changed Australia and how society was after the war was over. Um, the labour movement has long been concerned with questions of social welfare for working people. How did the question of providing for returned soldiers and their families you know, come together with the labour movement's interest in a broader social welfare program? Well, the returned soldiers... Um were guaranteed a number of of benefits, if you can call them that, because, of course, many of them were injured both physically and um, uh, psychologically. They were guaranteed pensions and um, medical benefits, uh, access to land under the soldier settlement scheme, 
and so on. Uh, but the amount of money that was available to support them, of course, had to be diverted from other programs. And the problem for Australia was that um, it had agreed in 1914 to cover the costs of maintaining the Australian Imperial Force in action. And so Australia emerged in 1919 with a huge war debt. And um, Hughes hoped and tried very hard to get that war debt to be covered by reparations from the German government. But Australia got very, very little in terms of reparations. And so social policy and every other policy in the 1920s is constrained by the fact that there is this debt burden that results from the war. Not unlike the situation in the US today with its enormous debt burden for wars in the 21st century. Yeah, I suppose so, yes. Yes. Uh, It was a source of great frustration to Hughes. Joan Beaumont from the Australian National University. Um, This week you appeared on ABC2 in the documentary Lest We Forget What, in which you remarked that one of the social tragedies of the First World War was that it left Australia a divided society, a more socially conservative society, a more xenophobic one and less innovative. Talk more about that. Well, one of the the biggest and, and most catastrophic outcomes of the war for the labour movement, of course, was that the, de- the debate about conscription led to the split of the party at the, well, not just at the federal level, but in most of the states. And um, even before the vote is taken in 1916, they, Hughes's cabinet has split, and then in November he walks out of the party when he's about to be expelled with uh, 24 other Labour members. And after a short period... Uh, of governing informally with the support of the Liberal opposition, uh, Hughes formed a coalition with his former political opponents called the Nationalists. Now, they then went and had a federal election in May 1917, which they won handsomely. So Labour is left in opposition. And in many ways, and really they stay in that state at the federal level, not so much at the state level, but at the federal level, they never really get back into power for any considerable period until the 1940s. And why I argue that Australia was left much more conservative is because I I think you can see the split of the Labour Party and then the installation of the Conservative Coalition as as a a major shift to the right in Australian federal politics. And these people after they'd won the May election on on a win-the-war ticket, were able to articulate very powerfully a doctrine of loyalty to the British Empire, support for the war. Uh, They tried, of course, again to introduce conscription, but essentially that that hybrid coalition that Hughes forms stays in power until 1923 and then in a different form continues to govern for much of the interwar period. So it's a, you know, a major rupture in, the, in that trajectory, a major break in that trajectory that Labor appeared to be on before World War I, when they appeared to have the, you know, the possibility of governing nationally and, and achieving considerable reform. How did political and industrial labor in Australia play a different role to that in other countries during the First World War? Well, there are a number of differences, but firstly, as I mentioned earlier, there was very little 
mainstream opposition from Labour to the outbreak of war in Australia, which was not the case in some European countries. Um, and then the, the, the very prominent role that Labour played in conscription was not really replicated in other countries. And again, the, the role that Labour played in defeating conscription, I think, was absolutely fundamental. I think people like Henry Boot are as important in bringing about the defeat of conscription as, say, Archbishop Daniel Mannix, of whom we tend to hear a lot more. But they were able to play this role because the union movement was so strong prior to, to some of its defeats. You know, about half a million men were members of the union at that stage when the population was below five million. And so whereas in, in Britain and New Zealand, to a lesser extent in Canada, the governments were able to bring in conscription, um, in Australia it was defeated, as I say, in part because of the strength of the labour movement. There are other reasons as well, but, but the labour movement played a very central role. Uh, Joan Beaumont, one of your main interests is the commemoration and the memory of war. As you've shared with us today, there's such a rich social, industrial and political history behind the story of the First World War. But why do you believe we now experience such a narrow focus on the landing at Gallipoli and the very shallow stereotype of the young digger? the most important thing to remember about commemoration is that it is a form of memory rather than history and many scholars of memory would argue that how a society remembers the past tells us a lot more about the values and priorities of the society today than it does about what actually happened in the past. So if you take the fact that Oh, I think very few Australians today would know about the the general strike of 1917. That probably tells us that today most people don't know much about industrial action, the labour movement is weak, we live in an age of market neoliberal economics, and so people don't remember that episode of the past because it doesn't resonate with their experience today. But why the, the story of Gallipoli and the particular version of the soldier that it embodies has become so powerful. It's a very complex question. I think it's got something to do with the, well, a lot to do with the um, agency of the Australian government, successive Australian governments, who can see a lot of utility in a story that's about service for the nation, to put it in inverted commas. Um, for whom ANZAC can be used to validate contemporary deployments of the Australian Defence Force and for whom the values that they think ANZAC articulates um, still have some purpose and function in Australian society. I mean, values like sacrifice, endurance, you know, these are values which I would argue... Um, Australian authorities still promote because we need, even in an individualistic and materialistic society, to have people who will um, subordinate their needs to those of the collective good. Well, Joan Beaumont, thank you for joining us today for this broader reflection on the centenary of World War I. My pleasure. Thank you. Joan Beaumont is Professor in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian University. She's author of Broken Nation, a parallel social and military history of the First World War, and, by the by, also my mother. 
And as I mentioned earlier, today will be my last show for Stick Together here on the Community Radio Network. And before I finish up, there are a few people I'd like to acknowledge. Thank you to the staff and volunteers at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, a totally unique fixture in Australia's media landscape. I'd like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for its ongoing support of the program, as well as the technical support of the hardworking staff at the Community Radio Network. And of course, thanks to my team members of Stick Together, Annie McLaughlin, Elena McMaster, Dennis Rogachuk and Jack Barry. To all you listeners out there, stick with your unions. They're democracy in action and Workers United are the surest vehicle for progressive social change. That's it from me, Diana Beaumont. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.